I don't know about you, but that's one of my favorite hymns. Anybody know what the name of it is? Victory in Jesus. And we can say amen. There will be a day of victory in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So this morning, occasionally I like to do this. I like to give you as much evidence for the things in the scripture as we can present. Because uh, so many people think in terms of, uh, well, prove it to me. And, you know, people think, well, there's no proofs you can find in the Bible for any of these things. And the answer is there are plenty of proofs that you can find in the Bible for all of the things. Now, the Bible said the just shall live by faith and, and that we walk by faith and not by sight. But Hebrews also says that faith is the evidence that we have of things that are not seen. So I'd like to share with you eight pieces of evidence that validate the prove the, the uh, resurrection. So if you were to be asked by somebody why you believe the resurrection of Jesus is true, what would you say? Oh, I just believe it. Well, that's, that could be good enough. I would like to provide you with eight pieces of evidence, proof texts of the resurrection. So let's begin by going to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, this is where the gospel is explained and defined. And, and Paul writes this, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. So what's the gospel? People say the good news. It's that and more. Which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. In other words, this is not something that you swallowed one day, and then two days later you forgot all about it. This is where you stand. After I taught this to you, you got it. You have it. Something you must hang on to. Verse 2, by which also you're saved. If you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, um, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren, at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are asleep, so some are alive today as I'm writing, some are dead. Verse 7, after that he was seen of James and of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, Paul writes, that I am not meet. I shouldn't be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You, you can't have a worse resume for somebody to be a preacher or somebody to be an apostle or somebody to take a leadership role in the church than a guy who used to kill Christians for a living. People say that, yes, God can forgive, but when you've done certain things, God can't use you. This is a proof text that that's wrong. God's going to use you regardless of your past if you ask his forgiveness and if you dedicate yourself to him. So Paul is a worthy apostle because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is not hiding in his own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus. I am the least of the apostles, he says. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, by, and, his, and his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was mythic. Therefore, verse 11, it were I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So what do we believe? Well, Paul writes that there are many people who are eyewitnesses to what it is that Jesus did on the cross. He died on the cross, people saw that. For some people, that was the end of the, the case closed. But those who hung around long enough saw something else. They saw Jesus alive. Peter saw him, that was Cephas. Twelve disciples saw him. 
James and uh, James, Jesus' half-brother, saw him. These live eyewitnesses, when Paul was writing this, this, this book, were there. They could refudiate it. But the reality is nobody refudiated it except the disbelievers. Proof number two. Paul cites his own salvation. Go back over that again and think. Simply stated, Paul turned from enemy and skeptic of Jesus to the most ardent follower. What made the difference? What made the difference in his life? And Acts chapter 9 says he saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. The fact of the resurrection was Paul's turning point. He would eventually be tortured, he would be beheaded, but he would never recant his faith in a living Jesus Christ. Never. Proof number three, the disciples' transformation from fear to faith. Luke 24 describes the disciples locked up in a room, terrified, afraid, distressed, hopeless. Jesus was dead and buried, and they had the very real sense that pretty soon, Rome would be knocking on the door of the room they had locked themselves in to take them and crucify them. They were fearful, they were frightened, they were haunted. They turned from that fearfulness to fearlessness as they become leaders of the church of Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus dead, buried, and now they saw him after he entered the room that they had locked themselves in alive. You remember, I've told you many, many times, picture this as the room that the disciples had locked themselves up in. Picture these walls as the walls that separated the inside of that room from the outside. Picture these windows as being sealed with some kind of shutters. So nobody could get in and nobody could get out. The doors were bolted. The doors were locked. All of a sudden, these disciples who were locked up and shivering in their sandals, from that solid wall, they see a hand coming through. Then they see an arm. Then they see a face. Then they see a portion of the body. And then they see the whole person standing before them. Who was it? It was Jesus in his now glorified body. The same body that you're going to have. What does that mean? A body that can defy gravity. A body that can change its molecular structure. A solid wall is not solid. Nor is anything else that's supposedly solid, but it's not. It's molecules strung together loosely. And he was able to pass right through that molecular structure by readjusting his own molecular structure. His new body his glorified body, his heavenly body was able to do that. I got news for you. You're going to have the same body, the Bible says. Pretty amazing. Anybody want to fly? <laughs> Proof number four. Most of the disciples were killed for their faith. They never recanted. They never denied what they knew to be the truth, that Jesus was the Son of God and that he died and was buried and rose again. People die for what they believe to be true. They don't die for what they know is a lie. Can I say that again? And will you hear it? People die for what they believe to be true. They don't die for what they know is a lie. People have died for a lie unknowingly. But these men knew what they were doing. I decided to list again, which I've done many times for you, how they died. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Bartholomew was cut to pieces with knives. James, the elder, was beheaded. James, the younger, was sawn in pieces. Jude was shot through with arrows. Peter was crucified upside down. And Thomas was speared to death. 
They didn't have a pleasant retirement. They didn't go to sleep one day and not wake up until they were in heaven. They all suffered for what they believed to be true. And if they will suffer for that, what will we do? How much will you take? How much will I take? So the very, the very little challenge we have right now is we're basically told to be quiet. Can't we overcome that? Can't we stand against that? It's happening today. Christians who, want, who won't renounce Jesus are shot, burned, beheaded. There's been more, more martyrs in this century so far than in any other, any other century in human history. Christians who won't renounce Jesus are shot, burned, beheaded, and it's the resurrection that, make, that makes the difference. It took the power of the resurrection to turn Jesus' own family, his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, from rejecting Christ as the Messiah to accepting him as their Savior and their God. It's been said that the prophet is not received in his own home. It's been said that uh, families are divided over quote-unquote religion. Just think that all of, his, all of his, his brothers, and probably his sisters too, rejected Jesus. And it wasn't until he was raised from the dead, when they saw that, when they saw him, after what they saw him go through, they remembered the blood drenching down his face and the blood covering his body. They remembered the lash marks. They remember the crown of thorns biting into his brow and exposing bone. They remember him getting stabbed in the side as, as, as a, a liquid poured out of him and blood poured out of him. They remembered all of that. And they said, well, this was what comes when you call yourself the Messiah and nothing else. They may have remembered what Jesus said about being raised again after the third day. But when they actually saw him raised on the third day, it made all the difference. Proof number five, Roman and Jewish authorities certified Jesus was dead. John 19 tells us the Roman centurions didn't break Jesus' legs to bring on death because he was dead already. Instead, they pierced his side and water ran out. Medical science says that this is a sure sign of death as the periocardial sac around the heart was pierced. So there's science to support that liquid would come out of his body, water. Proof number six, Roman and Jewish authorities certified the tomb was empty. Matthew 28 gives the account of a frenzied civic and religious leaders trying to cover up why the tomb was empty. Cover up? We're so familiar with that, aren't we, in our day and age where people in power are trying to cover things up? We know what that's all about. Here, Jesus is receiving it firsthand. Here, the disciples are getting it firsthand. No, no, no. Don't believe what you see. Believe what I tell you. Watch this very shiny object over here. Forget about that Jesus thing. They couldn't do it. They couldn't separate people's, what the people saw, the reality, from the spin. If only we had that kind of a discerning spirit today. Amen, amen, amen. The fact was out. The tomb was empty. Jesus wasn't in it anymore, despite every effort to keep him there. If Jesus was still in his tomb a month later, guess what? His followers would have begun to turn his burial place into a shrine, a place where they would go to worship. That's what the, that's what the Muslims do with Muhammad. That's what the people who, are, who believe in Confucius do. Many popes are, 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 are buried in a tomb in the Vatican. 
and General Grant is buried in Grant's tomb, in case you couldn't figure that out. Proof number seven. Women were the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. In Jewish law, women were not permitted to be witnesses. Their testimony was prohibited. The evidence they would provide would be invalid. But the Gospels employ the testimony of Mary Magdalene and the other women as evidence of the resurrection. Their evidence must have been the truth in order to be used at that time to validate the appearance of Jesus alive. You see, Jesus doesn't discriminate. He would appear to women who were rejected. He would appear to the outcasts. He would appear to people in the highest social status. He would appear to people in the lowest of social status. Jesus didn't look on the exterior like we do today, piercing and dividing and slicing and dicing the, the country up into little groups of people. No, he looked at us all, and he didn't see what was going on out here. He saw what was going on in here. He could look at the heart and see what was real and what was fake, what was reality, and what was a story and a spin. These things he could see because he looked on the inside. Proof number eight, Jewish believers changed worship from Saturday to Sunday because of his resurrection. And why would they change their basic long-held honor of the Sabbath? Jan, uh, J John 20, verse 1, on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, women came to the tomb and found it empty. Sunday worship honored the day Christ rose from the dead. Sunday is the Lord's day. Some people don't believe that. You can believe what you want. But if you go to Scripture, the evidence of the resurrection is irrefutable. Christian thinker William Lane Craig writes this, Without the belief in the resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. The disciples would have remained crushed and defeated men, even had they continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher. His crucifixion would have forever silenced any hopes of his being the Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. The origin of Christianity therefore hinges on the belief of the early disciples that God raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus asked the question, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, it will change your whole life. Because if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you know, he said, you too will one day be raised from the dead. You too will enter into eternity the moment you pass. You'll be stepping from the finite to the infinite. You'll be going from the, from the temporary to the permanent, the forever, 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 ever in the love of Christ, ever in heaven with God, ever in heaven with your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful day it will be, amen? We shouldn't look glum. I still think Good Friday is not a bad name for the day. Something so good is going to come from it all. Evidence aside, what are the implications of the resurrection as a believer in Jesus? Romans 4.25, Christ was delivered for our sins and was raised again for our justification. As a believer in Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven. You are free from the guilt and shame of your past because your sin was placed on Christ and his righteousness is placed on you. Let me repeat it again. Your sin was placed on Christ 
and his righteousness is placed on you. When God looks down and looks at you, he's not looking for all the mistakes. He's not looking for all the sins. He's not looking for all the things that you did that were so dumb. He's looking at what he sees of Jesus. Not Jesus died for your sins. He's looking at the perfect Christ when he sees you. He sees you through the filter of Jesus. I'll put it that way. You've been made right with God. The Bible says the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. And his resurrection power is alive in you. And you can claim that power to overcome sin, death, and the grave, and the issues in your life that want to bury you in grief, remorse, fear, anxiety, worry, anger, whatever there is that would rob you of your joy in Jesus Christ. Don't let it happen. Don't let anybody steal your joy in Jesus Christ. He paid too much of a price for it. And when the Holy Spirit comes, joy is part of his, the fruit of the Spirit. You should grasp that. Hang on to it. Don't let go. Don't give it away. Don't let the evil one steal your joy. Don't let what people say about you or what people try to do to you or no matter how many times you've been mistreated in this life, don't let those things steal the joy and the peace you have in Jesus Christ because you have something that is so rare and so special. You have the gift of joy. You have the gift of Christ's love. So precious. A love that is unconditional. A love that doesn't set up levels of of perfection that you have to reach. Unconditional love. You say, but I do, I make mistakes, I do the wrong stuff, I sin all the time. Yeah, well, there's a remedy for that. That's not giving up on Jesus. The remedy for that is confess your sin. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You mean some of the terrible things I've done, Pastor? I mean some of the terrible things you've done that only you know about and God knows about. But he wants to clean the slate. And he doesn't want to remember anymore. So many times when we have, we have issues with people, they want to keep reminding us of what we did. Stuff keeps coming up. It's natural. It's normal. It's human. But Jesus has promised he's not going to throw it in your face anymore. If, if, if it's in your face right now, you know who's doing it? The devil. And that's exactly where he wants to keep you. He wants to keep you in the prison of your past. Don't give him any building blocks. Don't give him any bricks to build that prison wall. Tear him down. Don't give your, don't give your joy away. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Everything that you do in Jesus' name that's for the good counts. No good thing is ever wasted. No experience that you experience is ever wasted. You can learn from the experiences where you fell flat on your face and you can grow in those moments when you've done the right thing and you see how God smiles on you. What a wonderful life. Every day is filled with something new for the believer. People, go, people in your sphere of influence go around with their chins hanging to the ground. They're miserable. They're unhappy. They're distressed. 
their anxiety written. That shouldn't be us. And if it is, get on your knees and pray. It happens to me from time to time. I can get down in the mouth. I don't want to stay there because I don't taste very good. But think about it. None of us wants to be there. Paul brings this teaching of the resurrection to a conclusion with a challenge. If you really believe in the resurrection, let that knowledge, that certainty, keep you strong and unmoving in your faith. He encourages to work enthusiastically for the Lord, remembering that God will remember everything we do. The negative is covered by his blood and forgotten. The positive will be recorded in glory. Amen? What you do for Christ is going to be remembered. Only one thing will last. Heaven and earth may pass away, but only one thing will last, what's done for Jesus Christ. So as you go about your day from day to day, what good thing can I do today? What good word can I give somebody? You know that term benediction at the end of a service? That word benediction means good words. What good words can I share with somebody today to lift them up? So many hurting people in your life that come under your perusal, what good word can you give them to encourage them today and show them Jesus? For Paul, it was more than faith. It was more than knowledge. It was the sure conviction that one day we would share in the glory of the resurrection. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. Amen and amen. Let's live it. Let's love it. And let's let others share it. Let's pray. And so this morning, Father, we come to you. Help us to be steadfast. Help us not to be wishy-washy or blown around by every wind. Tough times out there. We don't like the things we see on television, in the news. We don't like how the world is going. But we live in another sphere. We live in your sphere. We are part of the Christian kingdom the spiritual kingdom, with Christ as our head. He'll never dis disappoint us in his leadership. And we look forward to the day when the rapture will take place and we will be called home to be with you, ever to reign with you through the millennial reign and then to reign through eternity. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I pray a special anointing on them this morning. I pray an anointing of encouragement and joy and peace, enthusiasm that can only come from the moving of the Holy Spirit within their life. Help us to have a divine appointment to speak to somebody, that somebody would hear the gospel and see the gospel in us and then come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. What a wonderful moment that would be for somebody today. In Jesus' name.